I'm really enjoying going through the book of Ephesians. Uh, Ephesians is such a rich book for us that, that holds high the glory of God and, uh, and shows us how God's purposes for uniting all things in Christ, uh, things in heaven and on earth and under the, under the earth, the, the spiritual realms, uh, everything is united in Christ. And so in Christ, we see the ultimate goal of everything. And, and sometimes we have a hard time when we look at, uh, well, just life in general, because we typically, I think, left to our own devices, we often just you see ourselves at the center, right? Which, which makes sense, but it's, it's a problem when we persist in that, right? It's probably our default mode, but when we persist in that, it's when we get into trouble. And so we just want to continually acknowledge the Lord Jesus Christ as the center of everything. And everything in, in all of the universe is intended to, to point to God's, uh, the riches of his kindness toward us in Christ. And every point of Ephesians uh, continues to drive that message home to us. Last week, we uh, talked to children, and the Lord addressed children. Children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. And so we spent last week, remember, uh, kids, I told you that you might want to scoot away from your parents a little bit because they might be kind of elbowing you last week. Well, guess what? It's your turn. So all the kids in the room kind of come with me, right? Get your elbows out. You ready? All right. Now, mom and dad, you might want to just sit with your arms kind of close. Just protect your sides a little bit. No, we're going to be kind to each other, right? We're going to be kind and tenderhearted to one another. So uh, when we think about what was, was happening in the culture that the letter of, of Ephesians was written to, that the letter was written to the church of Ephesus or these churches in what we now know as modern day Turkey, uh, we sort of naturally kind of compare them to our situation because that's what we know. But it was a very, these were very different times, very different days. Uh, In these ancient times, most families were uh, in shambles. And if not, Publicly, privately, they were sort of in shambles. There was this this idea that a, a mutual love among members of one another's families uh, was not the most prominent thing that you might see in families. That doesn't mean parents didn't love their children. It doesn't mean that mothers didn't love their children, that children didn't love one another, or that children didn't love their parents. But their expression of what that looked like, according to their culture and according to what they knew, was often very different uh, than what we experience in our culture. Um, a, a father's love for his children children may have quite often been conditional based on the usefulness of that child, uh, the, the, the profitability of that child, um, and how productive that child could be for the family or for the father's purposes, right? So but there's a Roman law called Patria Potestas, which meant that a father had virtual uh, life and death power. Uh, and I say virtual, but... but it, it, it was real true, virtual life and death power, not only over his, his slaves, but over his entire household. He could cast out his wife and not be accountable to anyone. He could cast out his children and not be accountable to anyone and not have anything uh, negative come back toward them. He could even kill them if he wanted and not be accountable to anyone. Now, we're not talking about the Christian family. We're talking about Roman culture in that day, uh, in the day of when Paul wrote these letters uh, and in the years preceding this, right? A, A newborn child was placed at its father's feet, which would determine its fate, or I should say, who would determine its fate. If the father picked it up, the child was allowed to stay in the home. If the father walked away, even you, you just kind of grieve at the passivity of it. 
child is placed at his feet, the father could simply turn and walk away. And that child would be, um, that child would be um, disposed of, much like we think of how abortion happens uh, in our world even today. It's a hard picture to swallow. It ought to be a hard picture to swallow, but it is the culture in which Paul is writing about these household codes to these Ephesians who are professing the name of Jesus. Sometimes if a father walked away from a child, that child would have been discarded and, and maybe they would have been sold into prostitution or raised to be a slave for someone else. Uh, listen to a letter written by a man named uh, Hilarion to his wife, Alice, and it reads, it reads this. You kind of have to brace yourself for this a bit. Heartiest greetings. Uh, note that we are now uh, still even in Alexandria. Don't worry. When others return, I will remain in Alexandria. I beg and I beseech you. Did I say this was 1 BC? So a year before Christ was born, give or take. I beg and I beseech you to take care of the little child. As soon as we receive the wages, I will send them to you. If, good luck to you, you have another child. If it is a boy, let it live. If it is a girl, expose it. Seneca, a renowned statesman in Rome, at the time Paul wrote to the, the uh, I'm sorry, at the time Paul wrote the Ephesian letter said, we, uh, we slaughter a fierce ox, we strangle a mad, mad dog, we plunge a knife into a sick cow, children born weak, born weak or deformed, we drown. Just a couple decades before this letter is written, th- these letters were written, these, these uh, comments were penned to family members. It's striking. It ought to be striking. It is not a stretch to say that when Paul writes to wives to submit to their husbands in a way that honors the Lord and to husbands to love their wives and serve them, sacrifice for them, give yourself for them as Christ has done for the church, that it was totally new in their concept of living. Now, that doesn't mean that the Lord had never said anything of that kind before, because we know that that's not true. But to Ephesian Christians reading this letter, it would have been shocking for them to read the way that Paul was saying that husbands are to lay down their lives for their wives to be a picture of the gospel because of this culture that they're living in. And when Paul says to the children to obey your fathers, honor them, because this is the first commandment that comes with a promise, it would have been a a bit shocking still. You mean in this difficult situation, honor them? Yes, because you're now Christ's, right? Now Now you belong to Christ. And so Paul's command to fathers as we'll read today, was not something that God had never said before, but for them to read it in their culture was a new concept, a shocking concept, or a renewed concept at, uh, at the very least. So let's look together at Ephesians um, 6, 1 through 4. We'll read together. Ephesians 6, 1 through 4. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for it is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. 
And here's our text for today, our verse for today, verse 4. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Our parallel text is in Colossians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children. He doesn't say to anger there, but lest they become discouraged. Do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Fathers, your greatest parental joy is to make disciples of your children by nurturing them in the Lord. And I'm going to say that again, fathers. Listen up if you're in here, fathers, or if you're going to be a father. uh, Your greatest parental joy is to make disciples of your children by nurturing them in the Lord. Everything that Paul says here uh, that we're going to read today, everything that we talk about today is applicable to fathers. It's applicable to mothers. It's applicable to grandparents. If you're an aunt or an uncle and you have significant oversight at times over your nieces and nephews, it's applicable to you too. So everyone in here should listen up and apply these principles. But the Apostle Paul is driving this, home, driving this word home today to fathers because of the culture in which they lived. Uh, but look at how he, um, oh, let me just say this first. Hebrews eleven twenty three uses the word, uh, the same word fathers, and it's used to refer to both parents. And so, as I said, it, it could refer to both parents, but the way that Paul develops this, it makes it real clear that he is addressing fathers, right? As, as we've seen, the father was the dominant figure in the home, and he was the parent that could most often and most easily provoke his children to anger, Right? But because we're addressing fathers today, it doesn't mean moms that you can provoke your children to anger, no problem, because this isn't addressed to you, because plenty of other texts address that as, as well. So today I'm going to be talking primarily to fathers, and everybody else is leaning in and really listening and applying these things uh, in your own heart as well. But Paul has a specific word for us. Listen to how Paul develops the language here when he's referring to parents and, and fathers. Ephesians 6.1 says, Obey your parents. Ephesians 6, 2 says, honor your father and mother, because he's quoting from Exodus and Deuteronomy, and then he moves to fathers, bring them up in the fear and instruction of the Lord. And if, 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 if we're paying attention to what we've been reading in Ephesians, we recognize that what, what flows comes out of a heart of worship for the Lord, it's very easy to hear a challenge and, and begin to think of lists of, of do's and don'ts or don'ts and do's. And actually, he does give a couple don'ts. He gives a don't and a do today. And so we'll talk about those broadly. But uh, we, we want to begin to make lists of things. And, and we want to begin to think, well, if I do X, Y, and Z, I'm a good father or things like that. We, we will tend to, to get off on the wrong foot if we focus there. What we want to be focused on, focusing on in our daily lives is living with and walking in a daily relationship with the Lord. If I am as a father walking in my relationship with the Lord, which would mean to live according to the reality that if I I am a child of God. I have been saved out of a life of sin, transferred into the kingdom of light by God's mercy and grace. And if that is true in my life, it ought to affect my Monday through Saturday, not just where I go for an hour on Sunday morning. And often what can be the case is that dads, we don't often uh, we sometimes say that we don't know how to disciple or how to train our kids in the Lord. Many times because we're not walking with the Lord. And when I say that, what do I mean? I mean, we're not 
opening our Bibles for ourselves throughout the week. See, when we're opening the Bibles for ourselves, a whole bunch of this just takes care of itself because this is not a textbook, friends. This is the living Word of God, living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing to, to, to the division of soul and spirit, joint and marrow. It knows the thoughts and the intents of our hearts. And so when we are in the Word, the Lord is working in us and through us and, and well, parenting according to how the Lord has loved us begins to flow. Now, it flows imperfectly, to be sure, but it begins to flow as a natural outgrowth of my own relationship with the Lord. So go, going back to think about our, our, our context here, right? Ephesians 4, 21 through 24, and I'm just going to summarize a few passages here. Uh, he has talked with the Ephesian Christians about those who, those who have, have heard about Jesus and were taught in Jesus as the truth is in Christ to, to put off your old self. Think about changing a shirt here, right? To put off your old self, to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. Well, I should just read the text. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and then to put on the, the, the new jersey, right? To put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. This is an ongoing, which is why we need to be in the Word, so that the, word, the Lord can show me how not to live as the Gentiles do, or as those who don't, uh, aren't redeemed do, but to live according to the, the, the Word of God, according to the Holy Spirit, which is, leads us to what? Ephesians 5, 1 and 2, being imitators of God as beloved children. When you're a beloved child, you want to imitate your father. Your children, dads, in many cases, in most cases, dare I would say, want to imitate you. They want to be like you. They want you to be pleased with them. Paul continues, walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to the Lord. And then 15 through 21 talks about what it means to be spirit-filled because we're aware of the days. We're aware that we're not alive forever and Jesus is coming back one day. Therefore, look carefully how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of time because the days are evil. Therefore, don't be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Don't get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Here's, we see, here's where we see this Spirit-filled life that impacts wives and husbands and children and fathers and next couple of weeks, slaves and masters. And do not get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Brothers and sisters, this is all worship. This is the life of worship that God has called us to. And so with all of that background in mind, the Apostle Paul says to these Ephesian Jesus-believing and professing dads, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. Often in, in conversations with people, uh, I'll hear them say, or, or I, I will say at times, 
well, this made me do that. Or this happened and, you know, right, this made me do that, right? And I, I will quickly just challenge people to say, well, okay, let's just, I, this might sound like semantics, but nothing makes you choose sin. We respond to the circumstances that we're in and we choose sin. But this word here, literally, do not provoke, is quite literally, don't make them angry. Now, children have to decide how they're going to respond to the situation. But parents, you can make them angry. They just have to decide what they're going to do with that anger in that moment. Do not provoke your children to anger. It suggests this the idea of provoking. It suggests a repeated ongoing pattern of treatment that gradually builds up a deep-seated anger and resentment that boils out in or boils over in outward hostility. So we're not talking about, you know, we all get frustrated once in a, once in a while, we bump into each other as we do life. We're talking about living life in such a way that causes our children to be angry toward us, to be hostile toward us. And we're to be mindful of that, fathers. We're to be mindful of it. So let's look at a few ways how we can, how we can do that. Well, well-meaning overprotection is a common cause of resentment in children. We, we, we can desire so much that our children uh, live according to the way that we think is absolutely right, that we protect them so much that we're not actually allowing them to learn for themselves. We're preventing the Lord from working in their heart. We're preventing the Lord from allowing them to learn through the circumstances in life because we protect them from Everything, or we, we may protect them from too many things. Now, I told you I'm going to try to stay away from lists. I'm giving you a list of some things right now, but I can't delineate for you exactly what that means to be overbearing and overprotective in every way. You see, God has given us a massive amount of wisdom in his word that we're to spend time in and fellowship with the Lord with. Fathers, you are to be as active in the leadership of what that looks like as your wife. Now, your wife may have more time with the kids, depending on work and schedules and things like that, but we are not to be absent. When, when you and I, dads, spend time with our kids, we are not babysitting. We're fathering. We're loving. We're leading. We're teaching. We're shepherding. We're not babysitting. We're not just watching the kids. We get to spend time with them. And so well-meaning overprotection is often a cause of this. Um, another common cause that provokes children to anger can be favoritism, right? We, we, we recently have talked about the story of, of uh, Jacob and Esau and, and how there was clear favoritism from their parents. And they both had their own favorite, and it caused quite a commotion in their family life situation. Parents, when we compare our children to one another, or when we compare our children, well, I'm moving ahead to another point here. When we compare our children to one another, especially in front of them, that's destructive to the understanding in their heart that God has fearfully and wonderfully made them, has given each child unique giftings, unique pursuits, and a unique call in their life. 
And our job as parents, right, when Proverbs tells us to train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not turn from it, that's not an unconditional promise that if we raise our children to follow the Lord, that they will be Christians and that they will always follow the Lord. It's a proverb. It's a general principle. It's a principle that generally holds true most of the time right? And so what is our job as parents? Our job as parents is to, to sort of like an arrow in a quiver, right? We kind of point that, pull that arrow out of the quiver and we attach it to the bow and we pull that bow back and we, and we shoot them in the direction according to the bent of how God made them. I have a nine-year-old and a 12-year-old son, and they're both wired quite differently. They have different wonderful aspects of their personalities. They have different interests. They have different things that they're good at, other things that they're not as good at, right? Both of them. And I, I don't expect them to be identical. I don't want to make one follow the path of another. So we have to be cautious that we're not overprotective. We have to be cautious that we're not showing favoritism. Children are provoked to anger often by discouragement. If you think about this fallen world that we live in, they live in the same world. How much is there? How much competition is there? How much pressure is there for grades? How much pressure is there for a scholarship? How much pressure is there for approval? How much pressure, dads, is put on your children for them to make you happy by fill in the blank. In other words, they need to accomplish a certain uh, thing or a certain uh, GPA or a certain sport Imagine the discouragement by vicariously trying to live through our kids for the things that we didn't accomplish when we were younger that we would place on them to accomplish now. Now, if those things are spelled out in Scripture, well, that's fine. But if you want them to be a good quarterback, if you want them to go to a certain school, You may be discouraging them by placing them in a position where they can never live up to your expectations. And that provokes them to anger. They're discouraged already, and we can discourage them even more. Another way they might be discouraged is by failing to sacrifice for our children and making them feel unwanted. If, if, if dads, we feel like we're babysitting when we get to spend time with our children, what are we telling our children? If we like to be out in the field more than we like to be with our children, if we like to be, you can fill in the blanks, there, I don't want to list too many things, but we're, we're called to sacrifice for our children. We're called to, to make them know that they are that they are wanted, that they are desired, that they are God's gift to us as their dads. We might not want to let them grow up at a normal pace. We might want to encourage them to act older than they really are. Now, I'm not saying anything against helping them grow and mature, but depending on where your children are in their age, depending on what their circumstances are, we understand where they're at. We understand that they're children. We understand that learning comes through, often learning comes through failure. 
Learning comes through repeated efforts to try to do something well. And so we try and we fail and we try and we fail. Are we there to help them learn how to fail well to God's glory? Are we there to help encourage them so that they understand that a failure at a particular point does not equal a failure of a character or the failure of a person? You think about all of the one another's in Scripture. And I, I love this aspect about how God has wired the church. See, remember how we were talking about uh, several weeks ago how the Lord has brought together Jew and Gentile? The, the two, two groups of people that would just hate each other the most? Couldn't stand to be around each other. Fathers, your greatest joy in the Lord is to train up your Christian brothers and sisters that happen to be your children for these years. Now just let that settle for a minute. If your children are professing, if your children are Christians, they're your brother in Christ. They're your sister in Christ, which means all of the one another's in scriptures now apply to you as a dad. So don't just search the scriptures for the word father. Brothers, bear with the failings of the weak. If one of you is caught in sin, one of you, uh, if a brother or sister is caught in sin, you who are spiritual, meaning not, not, not self-righteous, but you who are walking with the Lord, you who are walking with the Spirit, are to restore them in a spirit of gentleness. Fathers, do you restore your children in a spirit of gentleness? Obviously, physical abuse, verbal abuse of any kind. Children will grow up and develop anger in their heart. They'll be confused. Why are those who are supposed to love me the most belittling me? In fact, many times, children will grow up with an improper view of God based on being repeatedly sinned against by their father. Now, you'll never get it perfectly. Never. But what we want our children to see as we move on to this next section is that, that we are to walk out this positive command of bringing them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. I listed seven or eight items there. I mean, it could be a list of 20. 20 ways that we might provoke anger in our children. You know, a good question actually might be, a good homework assignment might be for each of us dads in this room to say, son, sweetheart, are there ways that I, or are there things that I do where you find yourself being becoming angry and discussing, learning from them if there's a repeated pattern. That doesn't mean, right, you make me eat broccoli. Okay, well, you're going to keep eating broccoli. Anything else? There's a book entitled uh, The Danger of Raising Nice Kids. And there's a challenge in there. 
We can, we can try to raise kids who contribute to society. We can raise kids who don't cause a fuss. We can raise kids who are polite. But if they don't know the Lord Jesus Christ as their personal Savior, they're nice kids who are headed for an eternity in hell separated from God. And our call, our job, our greatest joy is to get to help point them to Jesus. Now listen, fathers, we cannot ever change our, father, our children's heart. We can, we can, I'm going to use the word make a little loosely here. We can make them perform according to a certain standard. We can make them follow our rules, maybe. We can make them look a certain way. We can, we can set them in behavior patterns. And some of those things are actually right. You know, I remember when my kids were younger, um, and they would go through this stage where they were shy. And they wanted to do the high behind the leg thing, right? And different things like that. And, but we, we worked hard over a period of time to say, hey, listen, somebody's talking to you. Look at them in the eye and say, hi. Hi. No. Look up and say, hi. Hi. And we trained them how to interact with others. Just because I'm having a bad day doesn't mean I get to ignore everybody else and make their day bad. And so we have the privilege of not just trying to help them behave in ways that are healthy, but bring them to a place as much as we're able to till the soil of their heart, which requires patience, requires a clear goal, and it requires humility to recognize that I can't force repentance and faith in their heart. That is a work of the Lord. And I know early on when we started talking about Ephesians and we had conversations about how the Lord is saving a people unto himself. And I know words like predestination and different things like that make us nervous, but it will bring you such peace when you recognize that it is not your job to save them. It is your job. It is your call. It is your joy to help till the soil of their heart and plant the seeds of the gospel that we and pray that that seed would fall on well-watered soil. And from that seed and that nourishing water of relationship and the Lord's work in their life, which is outside of our control, that, that a plant would begin to grow. And that, according to the parable of the sower, that it wouldn't be choked out by the cares of this world, that it wouldn't be choked out by the gospel and prove to be just an excitement for the Lord that's not a genuine saving faith, but... but dies. No, but that it's a, it's a genuine conversion where they grow up because they recognize that they too are a child in need of a Savior. They're a child who acknowledges their own sin, which means what? Well, we're to, we're to bring them up in the discipline or the fear and admission, admonition of the Lord. This word discipline, it comes from the, the, the idea of systematic training of our children, which means it can't be on a whim fathers, there needs to be a consistency to our training. Inconsistency 
will provoke your children to anger. If you discipline your children when it's convenient and you don't discipline them when it's inconvenient, they will be confused. If you discipline your children because you're angry at their response to you because it offends you personally, more than it's revealing a heart that's not submitted to the Lord, it reveals pride in your heart and will be frustrating and confusing to your children when you try to teach them to submit their heart to the Lord. It has to do with the overall training of children, which does include corrective punishment or corrective discipline. And we live in a child-centered world, a child-centered society that says the kids should be the center of attention. They should get nearly everything that they want. And we go to great lengths to make sure that our children have every or as many positive, fun, wonderful experiences. And then what are we telling them about how life actually works? Let me ask you this. How are we teaching our kids that they need to be ready to suffer for the gospel of Jesus Christ? When people who are opposed to the gospel come after Christians. Fathers, we need to be training our children. We need to be readying them for the spiritual battle that we are in. So bring them up in the discipline and instruction. Uh, Nuthesia, instruction, it's, it's literally putting in mind, right? And so we're, we're disciplining them, we're training them, uh, which has both positive reinforcement and at times negative reinforcement. We're disciplining them. The idea of discipline, right? That idea of uh, systematically training. It would be as if we go to the ball field and we set up a tee and we just work through 30 swings, 40 swings, whatever their age and, and uh, attention span will handle. And we just work on, on how to swing the bat, how to hold your hands, how, to, how and when to move your hips, how to keep your eye on the ball. We just train them in a systematic way. Fathers, if we are not If we are not allowing the Lord to train our hearts, we are not in the right place to train our children's hearts. I hope that one of the greater greater things you're hearing out of this is this has more to do with your personal walk with Jesus and your own opening up of the scriptures Monday through Saturday than it does of a list of things that you can do to be a great father for your kids. It has everything to do with worshiping God. And when we do, we see it as a joy. We see it as a joy to get to make disciples of our children. In Deuteronomy, and I I don't have this on the screen for you, but um, in Deuteronomy, there's a passage known as the Shema. And uh, it's where the Lord gives instruction to the nation of Israel. And he says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall, sounds very much like Jesus when he gives a new command in the New Testament, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them 
diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you, when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And, the, and when the Lord your God brings you into a land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of all good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. And when you eat and you are full, then take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by his name only you shall swear. And you shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you, for the Lord your God in your midst is a jealous God. Lest the anger of the Lord be, I'm sorry, lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you, and he destroy you from the face of the earth. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And he continues to go on. And what he is saying is, fathers, parents, But fathers are to take the lead. Fathers are to establish the priority for our homes. Fathers don't always have to be the primary teacher. But the fathers should say, let's have a time reading the Bible together. I use the word family worship in a variety of contexts. What I don't want to do is put something before you that the Word of God doesn't outline exactly. So if I were to say, every family should worship at night before you go to bed, and you should read the Bible, and you should pray together, and you should sing a song together. Well, those are aspects of our Christian discipleship that the Lord shows us in Scripture for how we're to live our life. So that would be a reasonable thought. But at the end of the day, what God wants from us is to be living our Christian lives authentically with the Lord so that it overflows with our children. So we should be reading the Bible together at home with our children. And you may do that as a family. Uh, Sometimes we do things like this as a family. Sometimes I have one-on-one conversations with, with Sherilyn and with the boys at different times. So my point is that it can look like a lot of ways. But here's where I want to challenge you, man. Often, people will say something like, well, I don't really know that much about the Bible. Okay. I don't really know how to teach the Bible. Okay. I don't really know how to disciple my kids in the Lord. Okay, fine. No harm, no foul. No problem. What each of us is responsible for is where we are today, what we hear today, and what we do today and tomorrow and going forward. And I would submit to you, brothers, that many times it's really less of a lack of ability and more a lack of interest. Because often these same men can talk to me about baseball statistics from the 70s and 80s and 90s and can reference a specific game and a specific hit or a specific pitch. These same individuals know how to get the manual and figure out how to work the lawnmower or the tractor or the implement or whatever the case might be. But when it comes to the Bible, there seems to be a sense in which I can learn all these other things in life but I can't learn these. And I would say that it is my and it is our passion 
as elders, pastors, and others in the church to help teach you. To, to help you learn it. I don't want you to have to learn it on your own. I don't want you to have to try to figure it out on your own. But I will tell you, man, it takes a humility to come forward and say, I need help. And I believe that that honors the Lord as much as the day as when you went to the Lord and you said, I am, I'm drenched with sin and I need help. In fact, I need to be saved. Guys, we take our pride and we set it aside and we say, I need help because I want to take up the mantle of making disciples of my children. I want to experience, you know, you might've heard me say your greatest parental joy is to make disciples of your children by training them in the Lord or by nurturing them in the Lord. You might've heard me say that and thought, I don't experience joy with that. In fact, it feels like a total and complete failure. And what I want to encourage you with is, don't be discouraged by that. Let other brothers come around to you. Let other brothers come beside you and help you. And it does not matter if your children are uh, not born, if your children are one year old, or if your children are 17. In fact, I'll go further and say, it's never too late to invest in the life of your children. Because they're always your child, even when they're independent and they live on their own. And you would be surprised at the power of an honest, humble conversation. Honey, I really want to focus on this priority, and I'm not really sure the best way to go about it. Can we talk through this together? Will you help me? Yes, absolutely. I think every wife would say. Absolutely. In fact, for some, she may have been praying for that conversation to happen. But more than that, the Lord faithfully promises to supply everything that we need for life and godliness through the knowledge of him who has called us out of his glory and excellence. And when we, when we acknowledge that we're dependent on the Lord, what do you think you teach your kids to be dependent on the Lord? When you acknowledge that there's an area in your life that you need to grow in, what do you think you teach your children? That it's perfectly fine to be imperfect and following Christ and striving for growth. That it's perfectly normal and expected for a Christian man to fall, to fail, to get up and to go after the Lord again. But if they never see failure, if they never see something that's not perfect, if they never, well, I mean, we'd be fooling ourselves first and foremost. But I want to encourage you, brothers, to set aside our, our pride or our insecurity, which is really another form of pride, but to set it aside. And first and foremost, if you're not regularly getting alone with the Lord in his word, do that. And if you don't know how to do that, we want to help you. My greatest passion in life is to take God's word and to open it up with other people and help them see how to begin doing that for themselves. But it doesn't have to be me. There are many in this church that can help you with that. And we'd love to come alongside you. So as a family, 
wives are, are submitting to our husbands and husbands are loving their wife as Christ has loved the church and children are seeking to obey their parents and honoring their mother and father, which is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you, that you may live long in the land. And fathers, don't exasperate your children. Don't provoke your children to anger, but positively bring them up in the disciplined training and righteousness of the Lord. So that it would be our main goal, as we heard a friend say recently, and I said this in Sunday school, I don't know if I said it here, it is my job as a parent to be sure that my kids, as much as I'm able, love Jesus more than they like me. Heavenly Father, to that end, Lord, would you help us, would you equip us, would you encourage us? It's a joyous task that you've called us to, Lord, and it is a task that's beyond our natural ability. It's a task that requires the community of faith. It's a task that requires that we have help from you, which is no surprise to you. It's why you have created to us to, 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 to live in relationship with you and to, to express our daily dependence on you. And you don't ever give us empty promises, Lord. You always fulfill your word to be faithful to us. You always fulfill your word to supply everything that we need. And so, Lord, there may be fathers in here this morning that are encouraged because they're striving well. Continue to encourage them, I pray. There may be fathers in here, this just feels like a ton of bricks because they may feel like there are so many areas where they have to start. Lord, would you just help them? Would you give them wisdom from your spirit to identify one area where you would lead them to respond in this, in this way? Lord, there may, may, may be men in here who, who aren't, uh, aren't reading your word on their own. They may be frustrated by the fact that they don't know more of the Bible, and when they try to read, they feel... Um, a little foolish because I don't understand certain things. Lord, I pray that you would not allow the enemy to continue to speak lies into their heart and their mind. You expect each one of us to grow, which means we start from a place of not knowing a whole lot and we grow a little bit at a time. And so, Lord, I pray for encouragement. I pray for boldness. I pray for humility for all of us. Moms, dads, aunts, uncles, grandparents, we need you. And Lord, we pray for the future generation. We pray that they would grow up to know who you are, to know themselves, and to run headlong toward you where they will find salvation and life. And would you help us as a church family to be an encouragement to one another as we seek to train up our next generation, for your glory and for the fame of your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.